Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, so today on the show, I speak with Dr. Zach Bush. Zach is trained as a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. Now, Zach's passions and interests span a broad variety of interrelated topics. He is a highly influential and respected educator and thought leader on the microbiome and its relationship to health, disease, and food systems. Zach is also an expert on soil ecology and water systems and their connection to genomics, immunity, and gut-brain health. And he is steeped in the systemic shortcomings of the agricultural and pharmaceutical industries. Now, there are a lot of disease specialists and functional medicine doctors with expertise in gut health and intestinal permeability. There are skilled nutritionists and diet experts. There are immunologists and endocrinologists. There are brilliant ecologists and regenerative farming advocates and authorities. But Zach is unique in that he weaves all of these connected yet disparate fields into an integrated understanding and vision for human and environmental well-being. As you will soon hear, he both zooms in and zooms out, and in so doing, opens the aperture of how we may live spiritually rich, healthy lives in regenerative harmony with nature. Now, Zach is not uncontroversial. Some of his positions on COVID have bucked the conventional narrative, and his undeniable verbal acuity invites some criticism from those who believe he leverages poetry at the expense of empiricism. Candidly, I don't agree with Zach on everything, but he is nothing if not thoughtful. And I can personally attest that he is one of the most loving and compassionate humans that I've ever had the opportunity to meet. His signature endless hugs are not just ploys to pilfer your bacteria. Zach and I cover a lot of terrain, including the theory of terrain. We talk about the roots of disease and the causes for soaring rates of chronic and autoimmune conditions. We explore the deleterious impacts of glyphosate and intensive farming and how undermining plant and soil health cripple human immune systems. And we discuss solutions where Zach lays out his vision 
for an integrated, healthy planet. This episode is both dense and inspiring, and it may need to be listened to multiple times. Also, to sample Zach's new commune course for free, go to onecommune.com slash Zach Bush. That's onecommune.com slash Z-A-C-H-B-U-S-H. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Zach Bush. Hello, Zach. This is good to be with you. It's really, it's really great to be with you. Um, you know, we've just started to build a relationship, but um, I feel so comfortable with you, and I, I don't think I'm the only one. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I think you, uh, you make people feel at ease, and um, I think I mentioned this to you last time I saw you, but uh, you're uniquely present to the world, but also to other people. And I think that is, informs your body of knowledge, your strength, is that you manage to subsume a tremendous amount of energy, emotion, information. Any reason for that? I think that it's a result of curiosity, you know, in the end, I have seen it patterned in some of my mentors over time that the thing that really keeps us young in the end is our level of curiosity. And the things that happen in my mind do not lend themselves to curiosity because it's the same freaking thing day in and day out. And we see this, you know, ultimate punishment for thousands of years has been solitary confinement. Mm. And so whether we do that in prisons or we do it in psychiatric wards, it is an awful thing to do to a human being is to put them in isolation with themselves. And it's not because we aren't miraculous. It's not because we aren't an ecosystem in and of ourselves. It's not because we're not one with the universe. It's because the programming of the mind that has usurped the spirit, the programming of the mind that has stolen the curiosity and creativity from us because of the self-doubts, the insecurities, the self-destructive thought processes that we put, put ourselves through on a daily basis, the doubt that has been bred into the industrial mind is uh, really dangerous. And I find myself as a bit of an introvert pretty prone to slipping into that pattern. And so when I have the opportunity to be in communion with people, I find it an incredible opportunity to get out of my box, if you will, or get out of that low vibration state of repetition in my mind to just hear from another person. And that, that has been a very verdant garden of experience. Mm. Well, that, that, uh, that's on display on a regular basis with you. And it, it is a paradox um, <clears throat> because our modern and systems and structures seem to sanctify individualism and this story of separation. I know we're both friends and admirers of Charles Eisenstein, this notion that we are separate individuals living in this separate external universe, separate from each other in competition with each other, separate from nature in competition with nature, separate from the divine. Um, but despite this penchant for societal 
individualism, we are not very well equipped to be alone and in solitude. You know, we just were not trained. Um, and, you know, we spend a tremendous amount of time in distraction. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have stumbled upon a meditation practice and certainly very curious like you into examining the nature of my mind. And that can keep me quite busy for <laughs> uh, some time. But I would say society at large is very ill at ease with themselves. Mm. That's that's definitely a, a pattern that can be seen at all levels of micro to macro there, right? Yeah, like, uh, you look at our politics right now, and the, certainly the level of polarity is obvious, you know, the polarization that's happened between this, you know, two-sided political system that we've erroneously created for ourselves in this de pseudo-democracy that we live in, but it's even within the individual. And I think it's striking when you watch a political season unfold, you can actually, you know, as a physician, maybe it's super simple because you're used to seeing these patterns, but I would practice the exercise for everybody to watch the faces of the candidates as they move from, you know, April to November in that last year of, of the run-up to the election. And things that you want to take a look at is their eye position, like where, where are they looking, their the relative uh, squint or opening of the eyes, the amount of blood vessel dilation in their nose, uh, the, the vascular patterns in their cheeks, the uh, droop of uh, the skin beneath the eyes, the stress lines in the forehead, all these things. And what you'll find over and over again is that on both sides of the aisle, completely different personalities, they all will become inflamed over that six months period. And the inflammatory state, it can be seen in the biology. They get dilated blood vessels in the eye and in the nose and the cheeks get more flushed and they get uh, a more exaggerated uh, appearance of the eyes. They'll, they'll get more of that stare, kind of that fight or flight state going on as they move towards that election. And even somebody who's trying to portray themselves as this confident person, you know, I think of Hillary Clinton in those last few months of her run up towards uh, the race with, you know, Obama, even in that, you know, purely democratic f battle that they had, you know, mm -hmm. it wasn't even a cross aisle and it was so bitterly fought, you yeah. know, it was just like tooth and nail during that, that primary. And, she got she was trying to present herself as this like poised politician but both then and uh, the run up to her her attempt at the presidency uh you you see these patterns of, of uh the physiology of inflammation but then she gets hospitalized in both situations just mm -hmm. you know a month or six months weeks before the election hospitalized with pneumonia or whatnot and you know and so what's happening as our biology becomes dysfunctional within its space when it's trying to reflect something it's not and it becomes more and more insecure and it's patterning as we get inflamed the immune system literally becomes its own problem because it's reacting to everything yeah and so in this penultimate sense of self that you define there in the west i think our politicians are put on that pedestal expected to be the penultimate self the penultimate person who would lead a nation you know and this right. like pressure is put on them to become such the self such the body such the person such the philosopher all of these things you know the statesman all, all these pressures put on this individual 
And in the crushing weight of that, their body biologically becomes inflamed and starts to dysfunction, which is interesting in and of itself. But I think the psycho-spiritual side of it is equally interesting is their psycho-spiritual side becomes more inflamed. And then their rhetoric gets more intense and they get more bitter and, and they're trying you know, trying harder and harder to cover up their frustration at one another and they're trying to look poised, but they're getting more and more pissy and they're just like on that edge of inflammation at the rhetoric level. And so I always find it fascinating that whatever's going on at that biologic cellular level of stress, they're on the road, they're not sleeping, they're eating crap food, they're, yeah. everything's going wrong and their rhetoric and their, their psyche starts to show the fracture of that inflammation. Yeah. I mean, I've always marveled at Trump's ability to actually just remain upright given how inflamed his physiology must be and how that's informing his impudence and truculence and, you know, general pugilism as a, as a human. Um, and, and certainly that's, that's not a, um, no political party has a monopoly on that, you know, um, yeah. as you've pointed out. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things I'm excited to excavate with you is how that personal um, physiological inflammation is radiating outward into societal inflammation. And I think we, we you know, you don't have to turn your head too far to see it. Um, <clears throat> but to kind of stay, take a, a step back, you know, I just was treated to to you uh, serenading us uh, on the piano. Um, as I've gotten to know you, obviously, I think the world knows you as a doctor and an endocrinologist and someone that's done a lot of work on chemotherapy and then sort of the modern rendition um, of yourself. But you, you have a very, uh, I guess I would say varied um past in terms of different things that you've been interested in and different skills that you have accrued over the course of your life from general contractor to, I believe I've heard a story about you doing irrigation systems. And, and um, the more I learn about you and your Renaissance qualities, the more you make sense to me in, in some ways, because there are environmentalists who are studying the degradation of ecology and deforestation and degradation of soil. There are economists and politicians that are talking about, um, you know, some folks who are purporting the, the merits of neoliberalism and mechanization and globalism and others that are, you know, more labor focused. There are um, disease specialists. There are folks that are, become, you know, experts in the emerging field of the microbiome and intestinal permeability and gut health. Um, and so there's a lot of these specializations that people have um, that are incredibly important. But you seem to float above all of those different disciplines and others. And it, to both understand systems and then also synthesize them into what I would call sort of an integrated vision for personal and global well-being um, at a macro level. And, uh, and I think that this is why so many people are attracted to your message right now, because it's not just about like eat more sauerkraut 
for a, you know a plethora of healthy bacteria in your gut, although we should. But you are somehow pulling at all of these threads and weaving them into a overarching uh, tapestry. So I'd like just as a <laughs> um, just to even create some structure for our conversation because it could be a, a semester long <laughs> um, treaties. Um, I'd, I'd like to just suggest some, some organization principle for some of what we're going to talk about um, because, and start with public health and agriculture and, and maybe even a, a sort of a chronological bracket looking back towards the mid-90s and 1996. And maybe, you know, you could start to um, unpack a little bit of the observations that you started to notice across your work um, that address both sort of the increasing levels of, of chronic disease and autoimmune disease and then its relationship um, with how we actually grow our food. So, yeah, the public health and agricultural landscape maybe is worth, you know, backing up maybe even a couple of centuries just for a moment and then yeah. shoot to 1996. But, you know, the phenomenon of nutrition and malnutrition, I think, is really interesting to think about because I think we have the, the whole argument completely kind of ass backwards in this agricultural system where we think that we need, you know, mass food systems and 100,000 acre farms run by robots in order to feed 7.8 billion people. It's a fallacy that runs in it because even today with all of our grand, you know, infrastructure and technology around agriculture within the United States, 70% of the 7.8 billion people on the planet right now are fed by a peasant farmer. 70%. So 30% only of, of humanity is being fed by some chemical herbicide, you know, industrialized system the phenomenon of of scarcity if you will from nutrition was not entrenched in the human experience if you look at modern day indigenous people they don't believe in scarcity they they understand the abundance of nature uh, if if you haven't read the book you know out there called mutant messages uh, mutant message down under extraordinary woman uh, writes this book around her experience of being called to an Aboriginal tribe in Australia to, for a ceremony, for a celebration. And she had done some work with inner city Aboriginals who had been trying to you know, find an identity within modern culture. And she'd done some of this for decades. And so she assumed she was going to award luncheon uh, with the, these peoples. And so she flew over to Australia, picked out her outfit and the exact heels she wanted to be wearing. And she showed up at the hotel entrance at 12 o'clock to be picked up as instructed and this funky jeep pulls up with this guy in flip-flops and you know just a pair of you know desert shorts and picks her up this aboriginal guy and and she's like i i, I overdressed number one but <laughs> number two I, I wonder if i'm even going to the wrong place and she thinks they're going across town to this luncheon and the ride ends up taking four hours out in the bush and they get to these couple little funky shacks and she steps out and they're like, welcome, we're ready to begin. And she's like, well, so am I. She's, they're like, but you have to take all of these clothes off. And they end up dressing her in a couple of simple 
garbs and then burn all of the clothes that she came in in this fireplace outside of this hut. And she walks in and the elders of the tribe are there and everything else. And they go through a cleansing ceremony with her and everything else to kind of wash the industrialism off of her. Hmm. And then they say, now we're ready to begin. And they walk out the back of the, the hut and for the next three months walk. And she she didn't call her family. She didn't, everybody just thought she dropped off the face of the planet as she went for a th- you know for three months walking out. They covered 1,400 miles over uh, this process. And in that journey, this woman watches this modern day you know, tribe that's been in their practice of life for 50,000 years, this Aboriginal mm. people, 50,000 years, and everything around them is seen as abundance. They have no packs. They carry nothing with them. They have a few skins of water that they carry with them, but they need almost no water intake over the course of the day. They're walking through these desert climates and everything else. Everything is in abundance, and they are modern. They are here in the modern world. They're aware of the modern world in ways that we aren't. They can they can dream, see it. They can quantum level see modern civilization and all of its lost and confusion and all of that. And they see that. And what she sees in that journey with the aboriginals is this incredible abundance. And every day provides exactly what they need. Typically, they eat one meal a day at the end of a long walk. And it's, you know, grubs one day. And it's, you know, some fruits that they found on the way another day. And they're just foraging but it's clear that nature never never disappoints and always provides for them every single day for, for the 1,400-mile trip on which they carried nothing. And so I'm fascinated that that is our 50,000-year 50, origin of a sense of abundance. Mm-hmm. So when did we get the scarcity mentality when it came to agriculture and, and food systems? And I think it's when we moved from the, the true tribal experience that was mobile to a sense of ownership. As soon as we needed to own land, we lost our our provision of nature because we stopped traveling in her cycles. We stopped trusting Mother Earth, and we started to to develop a sense of ownership. And then on your little property, you don't have enough stuff, and so now you have to figure out how to be a consumer. And you start you know pulling in. You need to get wealth of some sort so you can buy stuff you don't have on your little piece of land. And you're no longer are are a citizen of Mother Earth, and you're a citizen of your 10 square feet, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, it's funny because we live under the illusion that we domesticated animals and cash crops like wheat and soy and sorghum and corn, etc. But we were the ones actually domesticated. And I, I think at the root of domestication is dome, which mm. means home. <laughs> mm. So we were the ones um, from a from a gene's eye a view of the universe it, it, from if you were a stock of wheat <laughs> the wheat has become perhaps the most successful um uh crop or or set of genomics or genetics maybe in the world um but uh but obviously we it was human beings that limited ourselves and our mobility. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right as it pertains to private property and protection of surplus and all of these things that I think kind of led us down a road away from, as you say, kind of more hunter-gatherer style society, but also towards theism and Abrahamic religions and all these other structures that, you know, put separated man from nature. Um, and, uh, and, you know, fast forward, here we are, but, but 
continue with your time with your chronology because I, I'm yeah I'm finding your interesting. domestication is such a good point because we have a modern day belief that modern food systems saved us from starvation and what I'm pointing to is for fifty thousand years we didn't have starvation we had you know widespread abundance that allowed indigenous peoples to inhabit every corner of the globe over those millions of years that preceded, you know, the species had very much identified their ideal ecosystem. But these humans, you know, starting 200,000 years ago, started everywhere and they traveled and they were curious and they moved with nature cycles and they learned to do this. And then, you know, a few thousand years back, you know, maybe 5,000 years, something like that, we'd start to, to, to domesticate. We start to do the, the settling down and the ownership and the and so we we developed this this sense of propriety uh, over nature, and in that we started to create scarcity and we and real vulnerability as a species, and we created mass you know starvation events and all kinds of things through history, and malnutrition had become part and parcel to the experience because we had picked a few of these species of plants to allow for domestication. So suddenly, we weren't eating the berries and we weren't eating, we were eating wheat all year round or we were eating right. wheat and a few potatoes or whatever it was. So we dumbed down our system in this necessity to own the thing, right? Yeah. And so in that, we created malnutrition. And so by the time we get to the beginning of the 20th century, the average life expectancy in the United States is only 48 years old. You know, it's, you know that's pathetic. Why was that? It's because we had this collision of poor nutrition due to this domestication of America through the colonialism and the takeover of the First Nations lands and we owned everything and we fenced it out and we created scarcity and starvation on this in this place where there really wasn't a problem with that previous at the scale that we were creating the vulnerability for. And then you layer on top of that the toxicity of the Industrial Revolution. So the the air quality in New York or London in, in 20th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, was horrific. It was You couldn't see the buildings. There was so much soot and everybody was building, burning coal for heat and cooking and kerosene in the air. And it was horrifically toxic combined with this malnutrition phenomenon. So then when we see you know the life expectancy go from 48 to 78 between 1900 and 1960, we say, oh, look, it, industrialized food is saving the day. When in fact, all we did was start to diversify back to a little bit more diverse nutrition systems. And that allowed for this marked improvement in it. And of course, at the same time, we figured out that water shouldn't be contaminated with feces and started to get the germ theory built out of that. And, and so we just cleaned up water and we started to improve n nutrient variety slightly. So by 1960, things were going pretty well. The big boon had come between 1945 and 1965 and improved nutrition. And interestingly, that was the moment that we got away from industrialized agriculture and we started growing backyard gardens. We, grew, mm, we had this huge right. campaign for the Victory Gardens. By the end of World War II, 1945, the United States was growing 40% of its food system in backyard gardens. And the diversity in a backyard garden, you've got the herbs and the spices and it's no longer wheat, corn, and potato. You've got real nutrients back into the garden. So I believe that the revolution and longevity of the 20th century had nothing to do with medicine, nothing to do with you know food, agriculture. It had to do with backyard reinvention. And so we reinvented that backyard and we started growing our food again and we got batching touch. And so we hit this really great life expectancy by the late 60s. 
And then we've seen this you know, new decline in the last couple of decades as we're starting to fight for that same 78-year average, and we're seeing chronic disease in children now at 52% of our kids with a chronic disorder or disease by the time they're 16, 18 years old. And that's not just the United States. Germany's at 54% of children with a chronic disorder and disease. So Western civilization has has done this bell curve kind of event where we peaked with you know a, a, an almost reconnection to nature with our backyard gardens, and then we lost it. And now today we grow 0.1% of our food in our backyard gardens. Wow. And so we lost it's, that. It's so funny because we use this... Um and it's a misnomer, but we, uh, this notion of the green revolution, um, but it, of course it's not attributed or ascribed to backyard gardens. It's a, ascribed to you know, the beginnings of intensive conventional farming. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, as we get into kind of more of the modern statistics around autoimmune diseases and chronic diseases, it's just staggering. And, um, and, you know, there's a lot of theories that are posited, you know, out, out there trying to establish causation or correlation between increasing rates of disease um, and, and really trying to excavate the true causes. And, you know, I've had conversations with people that talk about plastics or parabens or phthalates. I've, you know, had other conversations with folks about vaccinology, um, but it seems as if there is increasing compelling evidence to really create a strong correlation, if not causation, between these astronomical um, disease rates and our food system. Yeah. And it was set up, ironically, by the Green Revolution. So what would happen in 1996 when we went to a genetically engineered food system we had set the stage for that in, in the 1960s with the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution was a technologic solution to dead, dead dirt. Uh, this, you remember the Dust Bowl preceded the World War II era, and you've got this widespread starvation in the United States, soup lines, everything else going on. And in that starvation state, there was this you know, war event that took place, and we moved to the backyard garden. Suddenly, people are composting, and they, they solved for the problems right there in the backyard garden. And so the 1960s could have taken that up, or the 50s and 60s coming out of World War II, we could have said, what did we do in the backyard gardens that suddenly such improved the, the state of affairs, the public health level for humanity between 1938 and 1948? What a revolution in nutrition. We should have you know, said, now how do we scale that? Instead, the end of World War II saw the advent of a huge glut of petroleum. And so we went from the largest mechanized war machine in history, which was just chewing through petroleum reserves like no, nobody's business, to suddenly the war machine stopped and there was all this petroleum. So what the hell are we going to do with this huge glut of petroleum? And so that was the, the dawn of MPK fertilizer. So we took petroleum, turned it into nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium fertilizers to pour into soil, dead dirt. And the dead dirt did do something yeah, remarkable. Looks, it sort of looks good it, from the outside. It's <laughs> like yeah. NPK is the accelerator. In the, uh, it's the foot on the accelerator pedal of, of plant biology. And so you're making plants grow faster and, and the photosynthesis rate increases and all that. But what photosynthesis is trying to do is take sunlight and combine it with carbon to create carbohydrates and fats. 
and, and then that energy is returned to the consumer, whether it be a cow or a human, and we break apart the carbon back into that light energy. So in that phenomenal exchange of energetics between the sun and our bodies, uh, the plants are doing their work, but it's all carbon-based. And so what we forgot was to, to get the carbon back into the soil system. Now we have global warming and all this uh, focus on CO2 in the atmosphere, not because CO2 is wrong, is bad. In right. fact, it's the source of life. And we've demonized the, the source of life, which is really ironic. And it's led to a lot of fallacies in not just our policy, but also in our economics that we've done with carbon offsets and carbon sequestration, engineering. All of this is fa fallacy. The biology of it is CO2 is the most precious gas that we have on the planet because it is the source for biologic energy. And so sun combined with CO2 in the chlorophyll and you get this massive carbohydrate event or this fat, um, you know, fatty acid created. And so this energy storage is happening. What we didn't do during the green revolution was get carbon back in the soils. And so we started depleting carbon, depleting carbon, depleting carbon. And when you deplete carbon, the first thing, one of the first signs is a deficient immune system in the plant. And so it becomes prone to encroachment from invasive species of other plants, weeds, etc., or an invasion by insects that will now chew up that, that sick plant because the nature knows to take down the lower vibration and leave the high vibration. So if the weeds are the highest vibration thing thriving in your garden, they're always going to be preferential over the plants that are fighting for their carbon source. Weeds are actually really vibrant pieces of nature that are good at moving into damaged soil systems to improve them. And so we, we pull them out or we spray them or we kill them. We're, we're killing the solution to the problem, which is not enough carbon nutrient in the soil systems. And so in that, we started to develop weakened immune systems as plants. And so we started saying, well, we need more to invent a bunch of herbicides and, and insecticides. So we're spraying pesticides and herbicides on our plants to, to buoy them through the, the harvest season, not realizing that eating plants that are weakened is leading to a deficiency within our bodies, which would then, of course, predispose us to vulnerabilities and pandemics and, you know, autoimmune disease and the rest. But on top of that, then you've got these herbicides and pesticides that our lab has, have become experts in understanding what are the mechanisms of action of glyphosate, for example, which is the, the original uh, active ingredient in Roundup, the most common weed killer on the planet. That glyphosate now sprayed into our soils at a rate of about 4 billion pounds a year undermines the relationship between the outside world and the inside world and it creates the autoimmune propensity and so in this extraordinary way the creating vulnerable but green fast-growing plants led us to a food system that was growing food that was nutrient deficient such that we began deficient we would then throw chemical drugs on top of the plants that would then further undermine us and then, of course, that would set us up for the 1970s, 80s, and 90s as we are seeing the explosion of chronic disease in, in the, not just the U.S., but throughout the entire industrial world. And suddenly it wasn't trauma and, you know, accidents that was the number one cause of death at all ages. Suddenly it was chronic disease uh, moved into the ranks. By 1996, we were seeing, you know, a, a real change in the economics of farming because of the scale that you now had to do to get you know, a commodities return on your crop. And so we were looking for ways to make it easier for farmers to scale. And this is where genetic engineering really stepped in to say, wow, what if we could genetically engineer the corn and the soybean and the squash, which were the first three, 
yellow squash. We don't think of that as a genetically engineered mm -hmm. crop, but that was actually pre preceded 1996. It was like yellow squash, then corn, then soybean, then sugar beets, and now we got 30 different crops that are all genetically engineered to be yeah. able to be sprayed directly with glyphosate. Up before 1996, we had to spot spray the weeds around the plants. We didn't want to spray the crop. We'd kill it. So we really, you know, did something wondrous when we said, well, what if we could just spray this chemical everywhere and the, only the plants that we wanted to grow would grow and everything else would die. And so in that loss of biodiversity and that loss of kind of that nature, we not only killed all of the weeds easily, we killed all of the microbiome in the soil because uh, glyphosate is a potent antibiotic. It kills not just bacteria, but also fungi, parasites, anything kind of living in the soil. One application of Roundup uh, across a field has been shown to diminish the, the top-dwelling earthworms by 50%. After a couple of years, you can lose 96% of you know, your earthworm after seven, eight years of continuous you know, herbicide, genetically engineered crop growth. And so we're depleting the soil of its life. And of course, the result is weaker and weaker plants, which more and more inputs. And so it's great to be a chemical company because you know your customer is going to need more next year no matter what happens. And so it's a it's a really good business plan, but a really horrific biologic model for life. And so we, we see the peak and then the decline of life expectancy in the United States really tracking with nutrient delivery within our food, energetics uh, really within the food. And so certainly a loss of carbon as we kill the soil, it can't breathe in the CO2. We lose that whole song and dance of the carbon. But at the same time, glyphosate as an herbicide is is functioning as a chelator to lock up a lot of the critical minerals in the soil so it can't get to the plant so it's further diminished in its ability to produce enzymes that are you know critical for not only its immune system but also for its ability to make the alkaloids which are the medicines within our food yeah and so that classic adage from hippocrates and 3000 years before hippocrates the chinese medicine doctor said let thy food be thy medicine and so for 5,000 years, that was true. And then suddenly 1996 hits. And now suddenly we removed the medicine from our food because we genetically engineered for this this chemical to be applied that would destroy the microbes and the mechanisms within the plant to produce the food, it's medicine. And so uh, this is the state of affairs 1996 forward. And of course, biology responds immediately, which is always interesting. Like we here we are doing the stupidest thing you could possibly do to food. And yet biology is like, ah, oh, we can find a way around that stupidity. You know? <laughs> so biology simply starts exchanging the genetics. So we genetically engineered corn to be Roundup resistant. Soil is more and more dead. The weeds say, hey, you know what? We've got to, we got to get in there. We need to, so the corn says, I can't survive without the weeds. And so it sends out viruses Literally, the plant sends out viruses or it sends out, does it through direct genetic transfer called horizontal gene transfer to get that genetically engineered snippet that allows it to resist glyphosate out to all the weeds. Right. And pretty soon you have a whole field full of glyphosate resistant weeds, which right. is supposedly its original <laughs> purpose. Are those exosomes? Is that what that is? Um, well, they're actually, you know, really bacteriophage are okay. one of the mechanisms. So bacteriophage are the genetic carrier or the viruses that emerge from single-celled organisms. And then, you know, we can call them exosomes, but they're really targeted. So I would call them viruses because an exosome is not necessarily uh, protein-coded to deliver to source. That science is starting to change even now. We're starting to realize that even exosomes have protein-specific receptor surfaces that are... So I think we, we have to lose this concept of exosome versus virus versus bacteriophage. They're all genetic swapping mechanisms. Right. 
and they do it very quickly in a field. But they also do it in an ICU. And so you, you give somebody too many antibiotics and you wipe out their microbiome and a few bacteria figure out how to get around that, develop a, a gene that can resist an antibiotic. And they immediately do horizontal gene transfer, not just within the gut of that person, but all over the hospital. So now you have methicillin-resistant staph aureus and VRE and C. difficile colitis, all these hospital-acquired infections mm -hmm. of bacteria that have swapped around genetic information saying these doctors are freaking killing everything but here's a, here's a we found a trick use this and it immediately gets that trick out to the field and so resistant weeds resistant bacteria is biology's response to our effort to kill everything it's going to figure out a solution it's going to find biodiversity back and if biodiversity if the survival of biodiversity means the elimination of the human and its behavior nature will have to do that yeah so if I'm understanding correctly, the glyphosate is blocking the development or production of certain enzymes that are key or essential in building amino acids that would create more nutrient-rich food. And then also at the same time, it does seem that the presence of glyphosate has a deleterious impact on um, on our bacteria in our gut, which seems to be contributing to intestinal permeability, known as leaky gut, like breaking apart sort of some of those tight junctions that exist to uh, maintain a wall between bacteria and toxins and, and our bloodstream. Um, is that a decent understanding? Yeah, yeah, we can just, you know, we can point, maybe break it down into a couple layers. Number one, it's a chelator in the soil, so it'll grab those critical minerals that can't get to the plant. Then once into the plant, it starts to undermine the shikimate pathway, that enzyme pathway that makes the alkaloids, the medicine within our food, but also makes the essential amino acids. And so our body makes the majority of our amino acids. We have 22 amino acids that make over 400,000 different proteins in our body. So it's like an alphabet. You take these 22 amino acid Legos and you can build any kind of structure you need out of that. So 400,000 different versions of proteins are made from the same 22 letter alphabet of the amino acids. And within that, there's, there's nine that are considered the essential amino acids. Uh, that minority are the ones that we don't have any cellular ability to make on our own. And we're fully dependent on our food system and the bacteria within our gut to produce those for us. And it is cool that the bacteria do it even in devoid of food. Right? Yeah, so right. even when you're not eating, your bacteria are making the building blocks for life within you. Amazing. And so I, I find that really poetic somehow that, that the bacteria can do this on their own. So the bacteria and the plants are producing these essential amino acids. And when you look at the results of deleting the essential amino acids from the nutrition, the ones that are made through the shikimate pathway are called uh, aromatic amino acids because of the shape of the carbon molecule that, that's produced by these really cool enzymes. And those shapes are these ring-like uh, shapes of, of uh, tryptophan, phenylalanine, and tyrosine are three good examples of those that are made by the shikimate pathway. So when we treat our food with glyphosate, we lose these three essentials. And when you then look at the biologic ramifications, it's pretty stunning that those are real, those three are perhaps and arguably the most important ones for two different systems within the body. Number one, from my standpoint, endocrine system. So your hormones are highly related. So your ability to make testosterone, estrogen, or any other steroid hormone, vitamin D, all is related back to your ability to get phenylalanine, tyrosine, tryptophan into the system. The second system beyond the endocrine is the neurologic system, 5-HTP and serotonin and dopamine and all these downstream 
metabolites that we call neurotransmitters are also reliant upon these upstream amino acids. And so when you spray fields with, you know, or food systems with glyphosate, you've subtracted out the ability to have a functional endocrine system. So you're going to lose re reproductivity. You're going to lose energy. You're going to have chronic fatigue, chronic pain syndromes emerge. You're going to have diabetes and obesity emerge. You're going to have uh, the downstream effects of uh, the collapse of the regulatory system for sleep. So you're going to get sleep deficiency, fractured sleep, all of this due to the loss of these three essential amino acids. And then on top of that, you're going to lose the neurologic system. So you're going to see an epidemic of major depression, anxiety disorder, schizophrenia, you know, all the way to simple things like sex drive, all of those undermined by that loss of neurotransmitter. And so what we've seen over the last, you know, 1996 to, to 2016 over that, you know, brief 20-year period was an explosion of all of those, right? And it's fascinating to realize that the public health crisis that we're in was an agricultural decision to genetically engineer our food to tolerate a chemical that would undermine the building blocks for nature. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about this. At the core, uh, kind of sitting behind all of these different expressions, if you will, chronic disease and autoimmune disease, the core seems to be chronic epidemic level inflammation, right? And, you know, I saw, um, I, I've heard you talk about how the concentration of uh, cancer cases have started to redistribute into the heartland of the United States where there's the most prominence of, of glyphosate. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I was actually just looked online and I was curious and I was like, well, where are the highest cases of cancer? And sure enough, I was like, Kentucky, West Virginia, Louisiana, Iowa, Minnesota. And I'm like, um, and that is just absolutely astonishing, startling, horrifying, a lot of other adjectives. Um, and it, it seems, but it, it, it seems like there are some bright lights and, uh, you know, I guess before we get to some solutions, well, I guess it's also probably worthwhile to just address the systems and structures that then have built up around public health and conventional ag to perpetuate these systems. For example, like in our government with, you know, the farm bill, for example, that, you know, at one point probably had a decent intention to try to provide a backstop for farmers but now seems to be a sort of a crutch or just seems to consistently incentivize farmers to double down on conventional farming, but doesn't provide really any support that I can find within that bill for more organic or regenerative farming. Um, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about the structures that exist within the kind of political system. And then obviously some of the, uh, misaligned incentives, and that's probably the understatement of the year between um, pharma and and big ag. Yeah, yeah. So from 1978, we'll say so de debut of of glyphosate, which was patented by Monsanto in 74, really went widespread in 76. 
between 76 and 96, not even Monsanto could believe the success of their own chemical because they had never conceived of a genetic engineering that would allow them to apply this to all food. Like it was a weed killer. That's what it, there was a niche market. Suddenly it was the thing to spray on 125 million acres in the United States to be sprayed with this thing every year. They couldn't imagine their own success even in 1988. And so in 1988, they were doing their own cancer studies actually. And this is these papers have subsequently resurfaced in recent years um, and I believe are going to be the the reason why we will see massive you know kind of criminal lawsuits against Monsanto's you know executives and all of that in years to come is because uh, these these cancer studies proved that once we reached a certain level of glyphosate within the soil and water system we were going to create an epidemic of cancer but their argument was those levels are so high, there's no way we could ever get that much into the environment because when we spray it, it's a little bit there because we were a weed killer. Right. 1988, they didn't think they could ever reach that cancer threshold. 1996, 1998 hits and they suddenly spray it everywhere and they can now it's a water-soluble toxin, which means it gets into the water that runs from the rain and it filters into the river system and now that river system collects into the Mississippi. So 85% of the catchment area of the ag systems of the United States run into that single water system. So by the time you hit the last 90 miles between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, you have this river that's just full of glyphosate and it destroys the ecosystems of the rivers, of course, all the way, all, all the way up to its, you know, northern you know kind of catchment area if you look at indiana right now 60 percent of rivers in indiana have been deemed unsafe not for drinking unsafe for recreational use it's not safe to touch the water let alone drink the water 60 percent of rivers in indiana 80 percent of their lakes are deemed unsafe for recreational use and so we have so poisoned our water system with these herbicides pesticides and petroleum uh, nutrients and all of this you can't touch the water, you can't go in it, you can't boat in it, you can't you know, water ski, whatever you thought you were going to do. Get down to New Orleans, and now you're now you're in Cancer Alley. So you pointed out a few states that have the highest rates, but the highest you know, uh, geographic area in the developed world is that last 90 miles of the river. And so we are decimating human biology, as, of course, but then you look deeper, and of course, every earthworm there, every, you know, you know, alligator crocodile, whatever you can think of down in the bayous of louisiana is being crushed by this biologic you know toxin of uh, accumulation through that water system and interestingly the hallmark of cancer is cellular isolation a cancer cell cannot occur if there's connection between human cells if that cell is in community it will never become a cancer cell and there's something very important on the macro level to think about there yeah, yeah. but as you start to clip the tight junctions and more importantly the gap junctions which are the fiber optic cables that move light energy between cells as glyphosate goes through and clips all these connections and creates isolated cells in your intestines and subsequently in your liver and your blood vessels and throughout the whole body you now are setting up the whole body for cancer everywhere because cancer is simply an isolated cell isolation leads to a failure of, of nutrients we can go right back to the, the private ownership of land and the phenomenon of scarcity. It happens at the cellular level. As soon as you start to believe that you are an isolated thing and I own this space and this is me, I'm a cell, and I'm going to hold on to all my resources, the first thing that ha starts to happen is you fail to repair. And so you start to accumulate injury. 
and un unrepaired injury then leads to dysfunction at the genetic level, at the enzyme protein you know, synthesis level, and it goes on and on. The average cancer cell has 20,000 unrepaired genetic injuries that are now being passed on to its progeny. This has become, you know, so every cell division, every cell will have 20,000 injuries unrepaired passed on to the next. These are cells that are so injured now that they can, don't even have the mechanisms of, of apoptosis, which is cell suicide. So now it can't eliminate itself. So its only function that's been boiled down to is proliferation. An isolated cell becomes a cancer and its only option is proliferation. I would argue that humanity in its isolation has become the cancer on the planet for that individualism, that, that sense of isolation, the sense of scarcity, the sense of holding on, it happens at the cell level. And so when we see a cancer epidemic, we can be confident we're going to see the same behaviors. And if you look at the most you know, potent, radicalized environments for this kind of tension between the Trump and you know, the democratic environment and all of this and what we've seen, it's in the heartland. Mm. That's where you see the real yeah. like, wow. religious intensity. Yeah. because of the isolationism that's happening and the, their cancer that's being manifested in their intestines is exactly the necessary worldview that they're going to have when they look at a politician. They want somebody to tell them that they're important and that we're going to fight for resources for you and we're going to protect the money you make and we're going to make you more money because you need more stuff. That's what they want to hear because that is their belief system at the cellular level is there's a huge need, there's a scarcity, and they need to be on the inside of winning it. Yeah, and just the susceptibility to fear and subsequent outrage. I mean, that's what I witness every day in the world around us is that people seem to be in a constant state of what I call amygdala hijack, but fear and associated outrage. And there's a, you know, a panoply of reasons for that. Certainly mainstream media, social media contribute to that. But, you know, but you've got to imagine if you're suffering from cancer, diabetes, autism, IBS, you know, go down the line physiologically, what does that do to your psychology? And it, it's, it's no wonder that we're living in this era of atomization of, um, antagonization where it's like, you know, if you go on social media, there is no profitable project there around the marketplace of ideas. It's just mm -hmm. people hurling vitriolic barbs at each other. You know, we, we seem to have in this atomization lost the ability to cooperate and find middle ground and commune. And our biggest projects have always been predicated on this ability to cooperate and and that has been endemic to our species over history is this ability to cooperate flexibly at scale and um and we seem that seems to be eroding and fraying and you know if i understand correctly we can trace a lot of that back in terms of what we're putting in our bodies and and how we're growing our food that simply it's that direct yeah, the, that old adage, you know, you are what you eat, is becoming really, really literal as we work out the genomics of human biology. Uh, we now know that, you know, there's only 20,000 genes in the human genome, which is pretty pathetically low. Yeah. We thought we had 400,000 genes or at least 280,000 genes because we have so many proteins and we thought one gene made a protein. That's not how it works at all. In fact, you know, we're very plastic and the environment tells what a gene should make. And so a gene in its DNA sequence can make 
you know, dozens, if not hundreds of, of proteins, depending on the environment around it. And so the body you will build today is not because of what genes mom and dad passed to you, but what did you touch today? What did you breathe today? What does your community look like today? And I mean, community at the cellular level, bacteria, fungi, parasites, protozoa, who's talking to you? And interestingly, at that cellular level, we now know that the genome within the bacteria number over 2 million genes. And so 2 million genes and their protein synthesis is fascinating to think of. Like you are, you are almost not, a, a flea has 30,000 genes and a fruit fly has 13,000 genes. So you fit right between a flea and a fruit fly. So you, you have <laughs> almost no genetic intelligence yeah. until you're in relationship to the human gut. And the human gut is so much more intelligent than that, that of a fruit fly. Fruit fly has almost no bacterial you know, population within it. So we have richness of biology. We have intelligence of biology because we became vessels for earth. We grew soil within us. That's where we became an intelligent species. We, we were created with a gut that functioned just as the organic soils of your garden do. That's when we made the leap. That was not a genetic, you know, Darwinian process. It was a anatomical phenomenon that led to the ability for us to grow this diversity of life within us. And then we had access to 2 million genes. And with that, we've become intelligent. If you look beyond the bacteria, the current estimates of unique genes in the world of, of the parasites that live in and around us in soil systems and our gut, etc., you're at like 2 billion genes. If you then look at the fungi, you're up around, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 125 trillion genes. And so when you look at the effects of chemical agriculture that undermines that intelligence, functions as antibiotics on every level, you realize we are not just losing quote unquote microbiome, we're losing life. We are losing the ability to express humanity in its fullest potential which is a result of its garden. Mm. Yeah, beautifully put. Um, and, and I suppose part of the solution is understanding the problem. Um, I mean, if not for the human genome product, a project that produced this revelation that we only have 20,000 genes, we might not have gone as full force into the study of the microbiome or epigenetics, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, now there is this epistemological evolution happening. Um, and, uh, and maybe you can touch on that because you seem to be tip of the spear there, um, in this evolution, uh, in terms of, okay, now we're understanding more. Um, we understand why, uh, for example, coronavirus, is as potent as it is and, and maybe didn't have to be because so many of us are immunocompromised, for example. Um, now, where, how can we leverage the knowledge and the wisdom that's now emerging uh, within some of these new fields to create a optimistic path forward? Because I believe you seem, you feel to me, like you are brimming with optimism and that's not the general line out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, you need to catch me at the right point of the day. I think you know, the more I'm around, <laughs> you know, the, the media version of humanity, the more depressed I get, you know, the more yeah. hopeless I get very quickly. Um, 
if I don't turn on television, if I stay away from the Instagram feed and I allow myself the freedom to witness humans around me, and if I do take that curiosity moment to say, who are you? Like, you know, I, I love the staff you have here at Commune, by the way. It's, there's uh, every chef that has worked here to serve us, I find phenomenally wonderful. They're just beautiful humans, so interesting in what they, they've done with their lives. Why, did, why are you a private chef? Like, what are you doing on this retreat center? Like, their stories are fascinating, and it usually ties back to their memory of, of family around the dinner table, and they mm. wanted to become, I would say, a modern-day shaman. A modern-day shaman is someone who knows how to bring people around food. And food is this epicenter of community that we forgot about. We think of it as, you know, am I paleo? Am I vegan? Am I blah, blah, blah? We create religion out of these things. When in fact, the food was only there to be a source of community. It was there to bring people around a single table so that we would be in <laughs> human fellowship. And it didn't have to do with the nutrients in the food. It had to do with this exchange. This energetic exchange is what feeds us. And so th this is, I think, the purpose of food on the grand level. And the people around here, if you stop and listen, are practicing that in the food they're preparing for this group or whatever it is. And so I, I think that we need to re-honor the food preparation process, whether that's a mother in the home preparing food or a stay-at-home dad or whoever is taking over this role of food preparation. We need to honor that work in a different way and we need to value it differently. Uh, if you look at how much the household spent, I think in the 1950s, it was like 30% of the household income was spent on food. Now it's down around 10%. And so 90% of the, the household is now going to, you know, mortgages of bigger houses and fancy cars and, you know, all of this ownership of more stuff. And we're spending less and less value or we're giving less and less value to food. And not only is that the way that we spend our money, it's the way we spend our time. And so now an obscene amount, I think it's 32% of meals in the United States are consumed alone at a steering wheel eating in your car. Oh, God. And so we lost not only the nutrients in the food and the fellowship with the soil, we lost the fellowship of humanity in our isolation of consumption of food. And now all it can do is hurt us. There is no opportunity for a quantum experience of fellowship around that food because we consume it in a drug-like fashion with fat, salt, sugar combinations in our car rushing to our next meeting to, so we could make some more money to spend on something other than food. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I read some statistic that when you walk into the grocery store, approximately 80% of the food on the shelf has some form of synthetic or processed added sugar to it. So this is what's going on. Um, you know, even in a whole foods, um, and of course there's, there's greater options. Um, they're around fresh fruits and vegetables, but we have large swaths of our population that are living in food deserts. And this is obviously something that you have uh, um, attacked head on. We generally associate food deserts in urban areas, but they're also happening in rural areas. Big time. Um, where, you know, people, um, you know, my dad worked in this project in, in Florida where um, there were farmers that have never eaten the food that they've grown. Oh, that's <laughs> most farmers. Yeah. Most farmers. So. You can't actually eat genetically engineered corn. It, it's too tough to chew off the cob. It's not It's not meant for direct human consumption. Yeah. You have to process it into cornmeal and then into, you know, high fructose corn syrup. You have to process it before it can even be consumed. Yeah. 
is there any role for bioengineering? Um, so, and I, I say that, like, take it outside of the political and economic realm. Clearly, bioengineering is stripping farmers of their own, in, the ability to control their own inputs um, and, and making them reliant on big business. And that's regulated by government and all sorts of policies that seem to have detrimental impacts. But just from a pure science perspective, is there a role, a constructive role for bioengineering? I would argue no, not at all. It's just, it's such a hubris that leads to the belief that you could pick a single gene trait and want to ma maximize that in a piece of corn or whatever the hell you're growing. The, the result of genetic engineering is genetic swapping. Nature immediately doesn't like that thing. Like it, it will immediately start to try to fix the problem, which was you know, an artificially inserted piece of information. Uh, we see that with this coronavirus that just went around the world. And I would definitely, my personal opinion and perspective scientifically on the pandemic was what we uncovered this year was a pandemic of, of immune dysfunction, yeah. not a pandemic of a virus. The virus is real. There is a coronavirus and it does have an odd gene in it. And it looks like it was inserted through non-natural mechanisms. Was that military? Maybe who cares? Was it actually more likely or, or just as likely in my mind is it was a, a result of a genetically engineered food system that was put into a pig in China and through this factory industrial you know, food system of these pigs, they started consuming genetically engineered crops that then started to, to blend with their genomic information and they start producing what looks like militarized virus and stuff like this because they do have artificially inserted gene segments. And the way in which we insert a gene is, is by a mechanism that makes that gene extra slippery. It's easy to get that gene elsewhere. And so but by the necessary steps to genetically engineer corn or a sugar beet, we're putting into nature extra fast swapping mechanisms to get genomics to move more quickly through viruses, exosomes, bacteriophage, whatever you want to call them. But we have this massive genetic swapping thing. So it could have been made in a military lab, could have, but as soon as it sneaked out of that military lab, nature would have done what it does, which is immediately reorganize that. And so even in those first cases of coronavirus at the beginning of the pandemic that they were genetically sequencing, even in Seattle in the very first weeks, there was like six different genetic sequences it wasn't a single coronavirus right. yeah and so to this fear that there was this genetically engineered virus that got out well if it did nature immediately did what it does which is diversify it and it will start to find you know variations of it and what we find over and over again is that when we have an unhealthy relationship to a virus nature starts to immediately reorganize it so it has a more homeostatic or balanced relationship to the human immune system and genome at large and so nature has this way of taking genetic information and doing the right thing with it. Genetic engineering is exactly how biology on the planet was created, but it did it through a cooperative relationship to nature. And so no gene ever propagated through nature that wasn't beneficial to two phenomenon, adaptation, capacity for adaptation, and biodiversification. If the genetic sequence did not lead to adaptation and survival of a species or biodiversification of species, it was not propagated. And that is the opposite of human behavior. We believe in intellectual property. We want to patent everything. We want to protect. It's ours. I invented it. So we don't share. 
So we create intellectual property around this gene sequence that I'm putting in this corn is mine, and I'm Monsanto, and I'm going to own 85% of the entire seed bank of the world. All right, you did that. To what end? To the end of your IP could not be protected because nature started using it. Nature took it and spread it to all of the weeds right. so that you, you can't own the weeds. The weeds are, are now <laughs> utilizing your IP. How are you going to go charge them money? Okay. You know, who, Nature has stolen your intellectual property and is now making your invention useless because the glyphosate no longer kills the weeds. And so nature is going to absolve our effort to genetically engineer to the end of ownership. If we started to become bioengineers with nature and co-create within her to, to the tune of we are not going to own some IP, but we're going to co-create in a garden space and we start trying, this is exactly what we've been doing through hybridization for hundreds and hundreds of years. And right. it worked. Yeah. Grow some, grow a bunch of peas. See which ones thrive. Let nature tell you what she wants to, yeah. to propagate. And then take that pea and grow some more pea plants. But that takes time, Zach. We don't have any time. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> we need convenience, not time. Um, yeah. And we need ownership. And ownership. Because if you let nature right. do that, you can't own the, the genetic sequence. If you inject the genetic sequence, you can say, hey, I did this special thing and I patented it and nobody else can own it. Right. And now I'm going to sue all the farmers that the pollen blows into their field and now they've they've stolen my IP because they're growing Monsanto corn and they didn't buy my seed. So you go and sue that farmer and now the whole country is there. So one of the ways in which we undermined you know, the, the sovereignty of the farmer, you asked about, you know, some of this infrastructure that I failed to answer earlier. But I believe that ownership of seed by chemical companies was really the biggest yeah. piece that took away the freedom of farmers and, and the ultimately the the ability for farmers to have a multi-generational farm. You know, we're losing 6,000, 8,000 farms a year in the United States now. Yeah. And this is the other component of it is the collapse of local economies and family farms, et cetera. And it, this has come to a head in a most symbolic way in India um, with the farmers' protest. And now, of course, that's gotten incredibly complicated given um, the Delta variant. And, you know, I don't want to hover on COVID too much because God knows there's been plenty of discussion around it. Um, and really, I just kind of want to use it for a moment as, as just as an example as we kind of move towards a brighter future, hopefully, where clearly um, our, our, our state of, of, of immunocompromisation has contributed to our susceptibility to COVID. Um, I think the number one indicator for aggressive COVID, whether that's hospitalization, hospitalization or mortality, I think is BMI, which is sort of a homely method of, of measuring obesity, um, but still in, in all of its kind of related or downstream maleffects, um, diabetes and, and heart disease, probably at the top of the list. Um, so, you know, you know, clearly what all of the things that we've been talking about for the last, you know, hour or so have contributed to the degradation of our human soil, if you will, of our immune system. But then there are, it has given rise to mutants and, and mutations like the Delta variant. And it, it does seem um, to be a highly pretty highly transmissible and, and a little bit more deadly, um, at least from the data that I've been able to call. And, but the difference is it does seem to be affecting younger cohorts. 
like India is a very young country, for example. I think the average or median age is 28. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think I've read that about a quarter of the, uh, of the folks that have contracted um, the Delta variant there are younger. They're in their 20s. And, you know, they don't suffer from some of the same, um, you know, the same envir negative environmental inputs that we're suffering from here. So I think, you know, there's this kind of, you know, and the, the, there's this invective going on sort of between germ theory and terrain theory. And honestly, I actually enjoy the fact that people are discussing this more because I, I believe the best ideas come out of conversation, right? Yeah. Um, and, um, and you know, where I've tried to land is some, is try to find some sort of middle path where there are pathogenic uh, viruses and bacteria in that, that exist that, that seem to overwhelm the human immune system. Um, and obviously we've degraded that system such that we're more susceptible to that overwhelm. And there's also, um, and so the terrain is damaged, but there's also a point at which there are some viruses and bacteria that contain genetic information that we just can't somehow adapt to. I mean, you know, I think of, and this is just me as a layperson trying to kind of understand, um, you know, this balance, this middle ground here of like, okay, well, there are things like measles that seem to have an R naught of 14 to 18, highly transmissible. Um, and, and, you know, humans get measles and generally, they manage it, but not always. Um, so I kind of wonder where, y you know, you sit kind of within this discussion. Um, because, uh, you know, it, like everything else in our modern society, it seems like there's just, it's presented in binary opposition. It's kind of like, oh, the coronavirus was, is not really that pathogenic. Um, and, and it's all terrain, um, or the opposite. So I kind of, you know, help me kind of untangle that a sure. bit. Sure. So, you know, it's not black and white. It's not one or the other. There's, you know, two truths that go on here. One in truth is, could be called germ theory, is that genetics swap all the time. Nature has been swapping genetic information since its origin, and that's how life has developed on the planet. And so it, to say that something is infectious is to say that it's mobile. And so there's a big difference between the mobility of a virus and the pathogenic quality of the virus. If you look at the Delta variant or any, any let's go beyond the current coronavirus because I'm almost bored of that topic because <laughs> yeah, it's not even thanks. a very virulent yeah, thing, right? It's like 99.99% of the people that have had this didn't die. Let's look at something like Ebola, which is like got a you know 15 to 30% mortality rate. Yeah, That's high. So that is a lethal freaking virus, and it happens relatively quickly. But what about the 70% of people that did see that virus and didn't die? And so when the vast majority, 70% being a pretty vast majority, don't die, why do we call it a pathogen? And so this has been our breakdown of thinking in, in allopathic medicine is, we see a stimulus, which is all I think a virus is. It's a stimulus to your immune system. It's very important to have stimulus to your immune system. An isolated immune system becomes ignorant very quickly and starts to go into an autoimmune process. And so it will destroy you if it can't find outside. It needs to see outside to see yourself. 
that's very important for all sociology, physiology, psychology, psychiatry. You have to be seen by another person. You need to see another person to understand yourself. Right. If you don't see the virus, if you don't, if you isolate, you try to sterilize your environment, you die very quickly from mood disorders and chronic disease, cancer, what have you. Sterilization is an awful phenomenon for the human body, we now know. So the human immune system is not a fight is not a factory of war. It's not a war machine against everything else to sterilize the human body, which is what I was taught in the nineteen nineties for sure. It's actually the opposite, is that it's actually a mechanism of relationship to the bacteria, the fungi, the viruses, the protozoa, the parasites. There is probably no such thing or no accurate term called the human immune system. A system of immunity is not one of resistance or fight or sterilization. It is a system of cooperation. It's a system of how much of you needs to be here to optimize this ecosystem? How much of you? How much of you? Okay, we need 10,000 species of bacteria and you know 5 million species of fungi. Like The numbers are just so big. Biodiversification within the system. So the viruses are ever-present. In my bloodstream right now is 10 to the 15 viruses, different viruses, not like copies. 10 to the 15 different viruses in my bloodstream right now. That's billions. In the stool of a child that was just born seven days ago, every gram of stool has 10 to the 8th viruses in it, which is interesting because I have an adaptive immune system. I can make antibodies. The 10 to the 8th in the child, he can't make an antibody. And so that seven-day-old baby won't have an adaptive immune system, won't be able to make a single antibody until they're you know, six months old. And so how is it that that body is in relationship to 10 to the 8th viruses in every gram of stool across their immune system that can't make an antibody? We're all lining up for these vaccines to create an antibody to a virus, but the the very obvious science is we don't stay in relationship to viruses through antibodies. Every kid in the world would be dead instantly from overwhelming infection if they were relying on antibodies to their to their bowel. There was one time in history that we made it said, well, they get their antibodies through breast milk, and so that's the it is the adaptive immune system that fights those viruses. But now we've got 60% of kids raised on soy formula and not breast milk. And they're not dead at eight, seven days from overwhelming infection. So is germ theory right? No, in that they assign pathogenesis to genetic swapping. So is, is mobility of genetic information real? Is, is mobility of bacteria real? Yes. And if you overwhelm the, you do anything human to screw up the balance of biodiversity in a system, you can get an infection. But is it the fault of any bacteria? No, it's the fault of the deficiency of community that leads to an infection, whether it be bacterial or viral. You see gangrene in a limb and a Civil War victim, and then you, you're mucking around in this gangrenous limb, and then you don't wash your hands. You go walk over to another severed limb, and you're working there, and you now transplant this you know, proliferated single or a couple strains of Staph aureus into another limb and you get gangrene there and you're like, there's germ theory. Well, no, you just, you, you, the limb over here didn't have an infection because it had uh, an intact biodiverse community. And then you screwed that up by transplanting an overwhelming amount of bacteria into that limb of a single species. And you did that through an unnatural mechanism. And so we need to see germ theory replanted with, you know, the, the philosophy of scarcity of biodiversity rather than overwhelm of a single species. And if we take that mentality, then we're going to de de develop a completely different response 
system. The, the tools will not be to you know, give more antibiotic when there's infection, kill more diversity, make the person more vulnerable to pathogens, viral or otherwise. And that's you know, certainly what you see in a hospital. You put somebody in the hospital with a viral pneumonia, they're going to have bacterial pneumonia in a matter of days and they're going to die from bacterial pneumonia, not from viral pneumonia. Nobody has ever died of coronavirus pneumonia. Nobody. Everybody yeah, dies downstream. weeks later when yeah. the virus is long gone from their lung and now it's bacterial infestation because fluid filled the lung because they had a hypoxic injury from their immune system's dysfunction, not from the virus itself. So we keep blaming the virus and therefore our response to the, the, the downstream dis-ease is completely erroneous. It's totally the wrong model. So germ theory is broken, needs to be reinvented. What about terrain theory? So Delta variant, if we go back to that for a moment, or if we think of the Ebola outbreak in these communities, why is 70% of the the community still protected from Ebola? Why do 70% of the sick people with Ebola still survive? What did they have that the 30% or 15% that die don't have? And it's an intact terrain that can deal with, with that injury recovery. Every human body has a rate of repair and a rate of injury. And if your rate of injury is higher than the rate of repair, then your likelihood of dying increases. And so that simple ratio is all we have to look at as doctors. And if we do that, then we come up with a completely different ratio of, of responses. And so now when I see a patient, whether they come into my clinic with an autoimmune disease or pneumonia or cancer, I do the same few things, which is how do I change that ratio of injury versus repair? And I know that my first step is to get water inside the body. And I need to get a living water in there. And so I need to get fruits and vegetables that are carrying quantum state water in a gel state that's going to hydrate the inside of the cell differently than just drinking a glass of water. I need to get nutrient food quality water into their into their body. And so I need to feed the heck out of that that person that's dying of cancer to get their, their water structure back in balance so that they can start to detox their body effectively and start to change that injury to repair ratio. If I do that, then healing happens. It's not about cutting out the cancer, radiating the cancer, poisoning the cancer. It's about changing the terrain for that cancer. And the same thing for the Ebola and the same thing for the coronavirus. We need to change the ratio of repair to injury, and then we will never see a, a disease manifested by a single bacteria virus or cancer because we changed the terrain for that disease. Okay. So let's talk about how to do that, how to change our aptitude for repair and injury. Um, and, uh, and maybe you could unpack some of the, some of the steps forward that you're seeing now within some of the work that you're doing and the constellation of community that, that we're building, um, around, you know, regenerative agriculture specifically, but around perhaps other things that you're seeing in functional medicine or integrative medicine, et cetera. Yeah. So the... This has been like my last decade. So I left the university, chemotherapy development, all that in 2010, started nutrition center to reverse chronic disease. And I immediately applied food science from the 1970s with Colin Campbell and uh, the work of Esselstein out of the Cleveland Clinic in the 1980s and uh, was really steeped in this plant medicine philosophy. If I got enough plant-based food into these people, I could reverse any disease. And it was working really well in about 30% of people. Like diabetes would reverse in six weeks, like crazy stuff that I didn't, as an endocrinologist, didn't think was possible. Another 30% would like improve but not disappear the disease, and they would kind of plateau. And then another third were continuing on a rapid decline. Same intervention over and over again. And so then I was 
had to step back to that train question again of like, what is the train of the 30% that makes them respond so robustly to this intervention of food? And this 30% gets worse. Like I was giving kale and seeing inflammation markers go up when I fed people kale. Didn't make any sense. And that was when we started to study soil and, and nutrient density and foods to realize, oh my God, worked in the 1970s because we had a different food system. Post-1996, mm. it was not kale that had any alkaloids. It was kale that had mm. not only a lack of medicine, it was kale that was now touching in a gut that was destroyed in its tight junction system and it was a leaky gut. And the insoluble fiber in that kale should have never gotten into the bloodstream and yeah. is now an inflammatory agent. And so I was poisoning my patients with <laughs> kale. And so, and this First was doctor ever. Yeah. And, and it's because of my kind of go big, go home kind of philosophy. That guy was like, I need a pound and a half of kale. If, if the salad didn't work, we just need a juice. We need to get so much kale into you. And I didn't realize I was, you know, poisoning my patients for some time. After a year and a half of listening to my patients, again, curious actually have the integrity to listen to your patient. One really smart doctor at the beginning of my medical training said, if you listen long enough as a doctor, you will be right 95% of the time because the patient will tell you not only what disease they have, they'll tell you how they got the disease and they'll tell you how to solve the disease if you listen long enough. Hmm. No doctors listen anymore. And so our rate of, uh, we, we measure success at a 10% response with chemotherapy. If 10% of the people you give this poison to have some sort of measurable effect over a six-month or 18-month period, we'll call that a successful drug. If you just listen for long enough, 95% of the time, you'll solve the problem. And so I start, when I realized that my idea of nutrition wasn't working, I started to default to the listening path, and I started to listen. And I started to realize that these patients were actually eating better than I was. They were trying to do everything I was saying and they were getting sicker for it. And so then I had to reevaluate kale instead of the patient. I was blaming the patient up and uh, they must not, they're eating Twinkies, not kale. They're doing, not eating enough kale. They're blah, blah, blah. I had all these blame, you know, things in my head and to develop the humility to listen and believe and trust that this is a human being that has a sense of a desire for autonomy and wellness within them. And if you honor that, they're going to start on the journey and they're going to tell you, how did this happen? What got me there? Went, went down the path. And so what I found very powerful in that community was to remind them of what the garden looked like that they grew up in. And I was in this rural food desert and fifth generation poverty was common. And they would, by and large, the more poor they were, be more close to that ancestral garden. I would have CEOs flying in my clinic from around the country and it was almost dismally hopeless because I was like, you need to fundamentally change your relationship with nature. I need you to grow food. And the CEO was looking at me like, dude, I don't even have time to get through my email list in a day. I'm like, I can't grow a garden. Like, I don't even know how to garden. I don't even know what that is. I, I have this manicured lawn and I live in a this community that has a homeowners association and the garden. You know, I have to have lawn that's cut at this level and blah, blah, blah. And I have to apply glyphosate in the homeowners agreement. I have to apply chemicals so I don't have dandelions in my gra grass. Like poverty is a gift. And I really believe this is a true the world over is it gives you, it, you are closer to the elemental experience of being alive in poverty than you are in wealth. The wealth has only worked to isolate you away from nature in, in modern society. And so remember that for yourself and your family. I, I see that the, some of the most difficult human journeys that I find are in trust fund, fund kids who are so isolated, not only from nature, but their own capacity for autonomy, their own 
ability to create their own reality because they were handed all of this wealth and they're protected away from the, the need to go figure out why are you here? What are you here to do? What are you here to contribute to the community? Where's your worth? Yeah. I mean, that's why Siddhartha left the palace. <laughs> You've got to send them out of the palace. You've yeah. got to get them out. You've got to let them start to build their own world. And if you take that gift away, that opportunity for experiential wisdom to form in that, they will not know purpose. They will not know self-identity and they will suffer deep levels. And so, you know, you can listen to that as, you know, somebody poor in the inner city and be like, yeah, it'd be a real bummer to be a trust fund kid. I understand the, the affliction of poverty. It's horrible. It leads to, to horrible problems to, to access to education being probably the primary problem with it. And so, you know, we need to then look to technology to do that, overcome the blockades to education for poverty, show children in poverty that you can come to school and that iPad that's provided at your school can be your access to information. All your curiosity can be saturated. What do you want to become? We need to use technology to break down those boundaries between poverty and education. And if we did that, we would fundamentally change society because people would go and become their own self-made woman, their own self-made man, whatever it is. There is an opportunity for us to define self again through a reconnection to knowledge and information stream. And we will do it in the context of nature if we are to succeed. And so we need biomimicry in our mindset of invention. We need to start inventing for uh, biologic you know, templates rather than for convenience. Uh, it has been the march towards convenience that has dominated invention and ingenuity, yeah. all technology. We need to instead say, what would nature do in this situation? How would nature create adaptation and biodiversity right now in, in this thing that I'm trying to solve? Maybe I'm building a, I'm architecting a house. How would nature build a house? Oh my gosh, nature's done houses for millions of years before humans showed up. And look, they, they're mobile. They, there's a nest for a year and then there's another nest next year and they, they're always in movement and they're adapting to the environment. There's this constant stream of information. So how should we build houses? Well, maybe if you're going to build something that can't move, maybe you shouldn't own it for very long. Hmm. Maybe you infest that house with your humanness for just a year and then you need to move on and you need a new experience with your community. And so you take your family and you move over here and then you go over here. And I'm finding that the pandemic had one very fortunate thing is it forced people out of their, their rooted behavior. Yeah. And we saw a diaspora happen out of my own company. You know, we used to have a hundred people working in the same building. Now they work all over the world. Yeah. And there's a diaspora that happened in this moment of the pandemic. So look at what biology did with a stupid year of human behavior where we did exactly the opposite thing. We socially distanced instead of get into community and improve our microbiome balance. We, we put masks on that were breathing polyethylene in, into our lungs from the plastic in the masks. And that, of course, destroys our immune system's ability to fight the virus and all of this in the first place. And then we spray disinfectant everywhere to denude our, our microbial intelligent system of immunity. And then we you know go and you know, create a genetic engineering thing to, to, to make bodies produce a neurotoxin in the form of a spike protein, and we call it a vaccine. Every step of the way that we did it as a response pandemic was wrong. Like it fundamentally was biologically fallacy. 
we did it though out of this fear paradigm we did it out of this like oh my gosh we're being attacked by this outside invader again you know and we need to fortify the the, the boundaries and become the self and block everybody out of the home and keep the elders isolated for sure because they're super vulnerable so don't let anybody go visit the nursing homes uh, oh my gosh that patient's dying with they had coronavirus three weeks ago and now they're dying i'm not going to touch that patient no elder died with coronavirus in their bloodstream at an infectious level and yet we wouldn't touch them we treated them like biohazards the virus is only high enough in the bloodstream for three to five days and that's usually at the very beginning of symptoms by the time they're starting to get the blood clots and the everything else and they're dying in the icus they they don't have a viral problem they're dying of complications of a collapsing system and they need human touch they need but we were so fearful we we forgot in our our pat our pathogenic belief in pathogens we 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 super isolated and i think you know we will look back on this past year as the saddest chapter in healthcare's history because we always rushed to the side of dying people and sat and listened and held and nurtured through all human history we started to isolate that experience in ICUs and stuff over the last you know decades and we started to fail in our ability to honor death as a second rebirth we stopped witnessing the rebirth, so we thought it was an endpoint. When you sit around an indigenous people or you sit with your elder who's dying at the bedside, you realize there is no endpoint. There is no death here. There's only rebirth happening, and you get to witness that. When you watch somebody cross the veil in and out in those last few minutes and hours of death, you realize they're already living another life on the other side of the veil. They're already seeing their ancestors. They're having conversations with their child that died in a car accident a few years ago. And they come back and they tell you about this conversation. Oh, my God, my child's fine. They're doing this amazing thing. And coming back and forth across the veil, you're like, there's no, there's no end point. This, this, when they let go of this body, it's because that energetic sphere that we might call a soul has already attached to the next journey. And it's always doing its next thing. And there's regeneration happening right in front of us in this death process. We forgot about all of that because we believed it was an endpoint, because we lost sight of it, because we were so fearful of that death, we didn't want to touch it. So we sterilized it and we isolated ourselves away from it. And in that, we have forgotten how to live. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you that the leitmotif of the last 18 months has been fear. Um, I wonder if you also see some sort of I don't know, ethical compulsion to it. And because, you know, as I started to look into data uh, around who was most detrimentally impacted by COVID, at least in the United States, it was uh, largely correlated with class. So I think I just looked at, at, at data that I could look at, uh, in the Los Angeles area. But there were, if you lived in a neighborhood with 30% prevalence of poverty or more, that you were 3.44 times more likely to be hospitalized or die from COVID. And then, you know, by extension, you could map class on, on top of race. So I think in, at least in LA, you were about three times more likely to be hospitalized or die of COVID if you were um, Latin American. And I think it was about 1.8 times if you were African American, and you know, I, you know, as I'm trying to process just kind of humanly and honestly all of the in, all of the information inputs, you know, I, I wondered if some of our reaction to COVID 
was not only fear, but sort of an ethical compulsion to protect the most vulnerable citizens among us. Because if one was just to look at this disease um, from a sort of Malthusian perspective and just say, okay, well, every once in a while, you know, there's something that comes around that sort of eliminates some part of the, of the, of the population. And it doesn't seem like um, socially mobile, wealthy, Caucasian people don't seem to be so impacted by this virus on a data perspective. Um, well, you know, that's okay. But that doesn't, that, but that wasn't the, 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 the response. The response seemed to be geared towards the most vulnerable. And I wonder if there, if you, if you see that as a, as a reflection of some kind of utilitarian ethics or something like that, um, or maybe not utilitarian because we're not benefiting the most amount of people. We're actually focused on a very, on a, well, it's not that small either because there's a lot of people that are immunocompromised in, in this country. But I, I wonder if you saw any sort of kind of ethical dimension to our response or not really, which I, I understand either way. I think the ethics were usurped by a, an erroneous scientific argument. Hmm. And so there's a difference between ethics and uh, what, do I, what would I call it? Maybe emotionality, right? So ethics is maybe that unemotional analysis of fair, unfair, whatever it is, this kind of ju judicial mindset. Uh, below ethics, we get into empathy. And empathy, I think, is a real toxic thing. Uh, empathy is our desire to input ourselves into somebody else's journey and go on that journey with them and go on this altruistic investigation into, oh my gosh, to be an inner city black person or something like this. And we, we go on this journey and we should start a nonprofit to support this and we do this or that. There's a real poison there because it, it, it's now me as the white person becoming the medicine for this situation somehow, which is the complete biologic BS. The solution is biodiversity across all sectors, all environments, all things. I need to move my family into the inner city if I want to be a solution for the inner city. The, this is would have been you know the the true ethical decision of like we need to diversify neighborhoods. We need to diversify this. If we did that, we would realize that the African-American and the you know, Hispanic populations aren't dying of coronavirus. They're dying of toxicity in their neighborhoods. Yeah. They are not dying at a higher propensity because they, they can't deal with coronavirus. They're poisoned by the food. They are poisoned by the air quality in their neighborhoods that differ from block to block, right? And so if you go into the boroughs of New York that had the highest mortality, they're right next to all of the, the ExxonMobil, you know, oil refineries right there and it's they are also the ones that have the the worst quality exhaust you know from the vehicles that are older they've got you know all of this built-in toxicity and on top of that the, because of their skin color they're not as adaptable to this toxic lifestyle that we call industrialized living the darker your skin pigment the longer it takes to get vitamin d conversion of the skin from sunlight and so the white person is actually adapted for indoor living better than somebody with pigmented skin. So when we said everybody needs to go inside, run away from each other, that was a death sentence to anybody with darker skin. We took them out of the sunlight. We took them out of 
Don't go to work. Don't go to school. Stay in your house and be on Zoom. Do school from Zoom. Those African-American kids are 10 times more vulnerable now after a year of living inside than their white counterparts. Not because of some genetic weakness or anything like that. Instead, it's because they are closer to that reality that we should be in touch with the sun so their skin is pigmented to be in healthier relationship to the sun. But in the 10 minutes that a, a Caucasian white skin will, will get vitamin D conversion, there's actually enough there to support the immune system. In the same 10 minutes, somebody with African-American skin is not going to get enough vitamin D to conversion to do it. And so the white population is better adapted through vitamin D synthesis and their speed at which they can do that in brief exposure to the sun for this indoor living that we've invented as industrialized things. So it's not socioeconomic. It's certainly not genetic. It's purely what is the result of being inside versus outside. And so we can then look at some very fascinating things. Vitamin D is definitely the whole secret behind coronavirus. So obesity is an isolation effect in and of itself. You're way less likely to go to the beach and wear your bathing suit if you're morbidly obese. You know, there's just a social isolationism and an indoor hide-yourself kind of quality to the state of being obese. And so this is a vitamin D deficiency setup. We could find nobody that was dying of vitamin of coronavirus that had a vitamin D greater than 50. It was it just did not happen on the public health level. Between 30 and 50, there was some hospitalization, but no death. You had to get to vitamin D levels below 15 before you saw, saw high mortality. At a vitamin D level less than 15 microliters per deciliter, uh, uh, or international units per deciliter, you, you've got such a deficiency of immune relationship that this cascade of inflammation is inevitable. It doesn't matter if it's coronavirus or flu, you're going to have a higher mortality. And so because of you know this belief that socioeconomics are somehow playing into it, we forgot that there's a biology to being African-American or Hispanic or BIPOC of any variation there you are more vulnerable to disease in a modern society if you have dark pigmented skin. So what mm. does that mean? We need to reinvent life for all of us, but especially for those with darker skin pigments to allow for a higher degree of vi vitamin D activation from sunlight. So we need to train our peoples back into outdoor living and the tone of our skin will determine how much sunshine we need to create the same immune result. Yeah. Would you advocate mass vitamin D supplementation? I do. Yeah. yeah. If that's the best we can do right now, it still works. Like it's not as good as sunshine. Uh, sunshine has a double effect on vitamin D. It increases vitamin D synthesis and upregulates the receptor for vitamin D, mm. whereas the supplement right. only increases your vitamin D level. But I'd rather do when than none. And so we should have rushed in at the beginning of the pandemic. If we thought we had a problem, no problem. Distribute vitamin D for free to everybody. And in fact, make sure that McDonald's has is, is <laughs> got vitamin D in the oil of their French fries. Yeah. We could have done that yeah. and it would have worked. And if we had gotten the urban population to a vitamin D level of 30, we would have seen no mortality. Yeah. We needed the golden rice of French fries. That's it. That's it. <laughs> but not beta carotene um, and not, not bioengineered. Um, so let's talk a little bit about regenerative farming because we, we haven't really fully gone there um, yet because, and this is a, um, I know, obviously a, a real primary focus uh, for you and your work and your fund. Um, I recently interviewed Jeff Katch, who I think you probably know, who's at the Rodale Institute that they're doing um, just fantastic work helping 
conventional farmers transition to to regenerative um, uh, farms. But maybe you could just touch on the primary practices uh, or techniques of regenerative farming and how it changes the game. Um, And then a little bit about the economic um, dimensions of it, because as I see more and more data, it seems clear to me that this mythology that regenerative farms have lower yields and can't be as profitable is completely false. Um, So maybe you can just unpack a little bit of, of that. So regenerative farming in a nutshell is going back to these two qualities of adaptation and biodiversity. Like that's my definition of regenerative farming. If you are practicing management styles that increase adaptation and biodiversity within your soil, within your plant species, within the crops you produce, then you're moving towards this regenerative space. I think that it's important to identify that, you know, or regenerative is not the same as organic. So somebody can be doing no-till and doing a lot of smart things for biodiversity, but still spraying chemicals. So you do want to do both of like eliminate the chemical dependence and increase. Those things really are synonymous in the end, but there is a transition period that I think we need to be generous to the farmer of, if like going to zero spray instantly probably doesn't, isn't necessary. If they stop tilling and start using cover crops and they start doing six to seven maybe 15 species of, of cover crop seeding, and then they do you know, either high-intensity grazing or I'm really a huge fan of the, the crimper roller that was invented by Jeff Moeller. Uh, Hope I've got your last name right there, Jeff, off the top of my head there at, at Rodale Institute. Um, uh, you know, th- these are incredible techniques for increasing the biodynamic, biodiversity, energetics of the soil systems and plant systems that would grow out of them. And of course, immediately we get that that robust immune system back into the nature. Right. And with a, with a, with an immune system back intact, you suddenly don't have any weeds. And most of these farmers that are making this transition are in the throes of of total overwhelm of their crops by genetically modified Roundup resistant weeds, you know, setting in. And so the weeds have taken back over, and they're now sp- spraying three to five chemicals, two four D. Uh, dicamba, you know, you got this stew of four or five nasty chemicals that are now necessary to kill the Roundup resistant weeds. And the amount of cost of all of those inputs is bankrupting your farm. Yeah. And so this is the phenomenon that the farmers are finally with their back against the wall saying, I'm going to go try this regen thing because I am going to lose the family farm here. And they stop spraying everything. They stop plowing, which means the farmer's not doing anything that they spent 99% of their time doing. They stop doing. And then there's time to think creatively, to think outside the box. And in that time, there's space for nature to recover. And it happens so blessedly fast. And so within one season of not plowing at the end of the season and not spraying in the spring, earthworms are coming back. The soil is starting yeah. to aerate itself. Carbon Retain capture water. is happening. Yeah. Water retention improves. The fungi come back in, and now you get the mycelial bed with the intelligence of the mycorrhizae and the root systems. And it's just like explosion of life happens. And within two to three years, these farmers are witnessing crops that they don't remember since maybe their grandfather's era. They haven't seen that land produce this kind of, you know, just tenacity for life for 30, 40, 50 years. And so I'm just so fascinated by the grace that is laced into the fabric of nature that she would forgive us so quickly of our insanity and our, you know, 
terrorism of her soils, she would forgive us so quickly and she would show us a path forward. And with that massive decrease in soil input costs and this massive abundance of, of resistance to, to disease of your crop systems, it's not unusual to see three to five years into your regenerative journey, a 5x improvement in your bottom line at the farm. 500% improvement in profits. Now, when you hear that, you think, I want to get into the financial system around farming. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that's exactly what we're doing. And so we're, we just launched Biome Capital. And it's a, a big impact fund that's 80% asset-backed where we're buying land with farmers. Most of the impact farms or um, farm impact funds out there are just buying land and putting a farm manager on there. And they try to sell it 10 years later for higher value or whatever it is. We took a different approach and we're, we're really working out mechanisms by which we talk to each farmer that we're buying the land with and say, how do we make you our exit strategy? How are we going to sell this land back to you so that you can have a multi-generational farm that will run for the next 200 years? How do we do that? And so um, Biome Capital is very excited to, to put the farmer back at the root system of the agricultural industry. Stop using the chemicals as like the foundation of, of the whole philosophy and economics and everything. I'll start putting the farmer and his family as that root system for the new building blocks for this new agricultural system. And then the other 20% of the fund is in investing in ag tech and other uh, supporting investments, strategic investments that help that farmer become more successful by integrating them into community. Yeah, It's technology that needs to reconnect farmers to their their ultimate buyer who is the consumer rather than big, you know, con you know, consumers of distribution agencies and these big, you know, middlemen that step in. We need to get the, the direct consumer phenomenon of farming back into the world. Yeah, because it's one thing to grow a regeneratively uh, grown vegetable, but it's another thing to then get it to market, like where you're going to store it, how you're going to distribute it, um, and, um, and all of the associated tech, um, that goes along with managing that. Um, and, and it's, yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, I, I have to imagine that this is going to be a huge part of, you know, of venture dollars, venture capital, private equity going forward. And, and I, and I hope that it's structured intelligently the way that you're doing it, because obviously anytime something good comes into vogue and financial institutions get involved, there's always the risk of, of, of lack of patience, honestly. Yeah. Um, Seriously. so I think it's really important to have, uh, not just great stewardship of the land, but, you know, sound financial stewardship that understands that these mechanisms take time and, you know, it's not a 60 month exit or, or whatever it is at a five X or something like that. So a, that's huge. And then, you know, you have the, I mean, th th there's so many benefits, um, from, you know, obviously sequestering carbon to creating a healthier food chain uh, to reconnecting farmers with their inputs and then just reviving local economies and local communities. And, and that part of it for me is, I think, you know, just really interesting because we are at this cross section or, or this, this, this kind of, um, uh, you know, inflection point, if you will, um, globally between what has, what we've done for the last 30 or 40 years, which is consistent globalization, consistent mechanization, uh, technology, uh, mechanization, 
and that it's always been an ex at the expense of local community. And now it seems as if now there is a efflorescence um, specifically around regenerative agriculture to take back control and reinvest it in communities. And, you know, I think we see it all the time in, in our in, our, uh, in the constellation of folks that we, that we speak with. I mean, there's a dozen projects that I could think of right now that are just visionary in scope of putting people back in community around healthy food chain. And, you know, there's every reason to be, to be optimistic at the right hour of the day. <laughs> um, and, uh, man, I'm just so, I'm so grateful that you are really getting your shoulder uh, into it because, uh, um, you could have, you know, a, a nice life, um, with you and your wife and, uh, and, and not be as engaged in moving us down the, the moral arc of the universe. So mm. I'm grateful that you're there. <laughs> That's my joy. It's, it is what keeps me going is, is the sense of uh, progress. You know, there's a sense of movement forward and, uh, I think I was pretty feeling pretty hopeless 2013, 2014, even in 2019 when my team was helping testify before the EPA when they had a required, you know, hearing for the, the reapproval of glyphosate in the country for another 13 years. And we presented 96 human experiments showing the toxicity of Roundup on fetuses and the multigenerational toxicity in cancer and heart disease and all this horrible stuff. And uh, it was to zero avail. And I mean, just, yeah. you know, they just shut the door on the whole thing, said this is not something we can even consider. There's regulatory blocks to our ability to even consider multigenerational toxicity, blah, blah, blah. Like, it was so dismal and so depressing. And so there was a hopelessness that was setting in. But what happened over the course of the pandemic again is that all of the stakeholders are coming to the table now saying we need to do this differently. And so whether the pandemic was accurate in its portrayal, it doesn't matter because it did do one thing right, is it gave us a sense of vulnerability. Right. And we needed to realize that we are that frog in the proverbial boiling water, <laughs> you know, and we needed to realize we are at the boiling point, people, and yeah. all the stakeholders are now coming to play. Yeah, and for everyone that feels paralyzed or numb in the face of the enormity of the world's problems, well, guess what? We actually can change our behavior and we can actually change it pretty quickly. And that's overnight. Overnight. And I, you know, to be honest, pre-pandemic i'm not sure i thought that was possible i didn't um and uh and that has been one of the one of i think the enlightening elements of this forced monasticism that it's it's made us look inward and really re-examine you know what makes life worthwhile um so i'm um I'm, I, I share some of that optimism and you know i i heard you um mention the number like 16 percent uh, which is, I think, the threshold that we need to get to. Um, if we start consuming 16% of our um, of our food system organically or regeneratively, and you can clarify that for me, that we will disrupt the uh, financial wherewithal of Bayer Montana. That's right. Yeah, so it's it's the juggernaut control of that that ninety six percent. They need a very large percentage of the food system to make their methodology 
in the black it's yeah. not even really profitable right but to get it to work they need to own 95 96 percent so we certainly threaten their body line bottom line at eight percent ten percent but at 16 percent the whole thing collapses because 84 percent of the food system is not enough to to scrape off enough profit to make their their economics work so it's very exciting to me that you know we can have so much effect and that's true at the global biologic level, too. We don't need to fix 100% of the soils. Current estimates are that 97% of the soils of arable land on the planet are depleted or severely depleted of nutrients and carbon. Mm-hmm. Currently, the average that you'll see around the world is somewhere around 1, 1.5% active carbon in soils. Ideal is somewhere between 4 and 12%. You know, your rainforests and things like that are probably up in that 10 to 12%. Um, biodiverse uh, regenerative farms that have been in practice for 30, 40 years will hit that 8, 10% uh, range, that kind of rainforest like density of carbon in there. So uh, we can have this incredible effect where it's like, you know, not going from 1% to 2% is 100% improvement, right? Going from 1% to 8% is just like this unbelievable improvement. And then you go to the Paris Accords and you listen to the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere and it's greenhouse gas and all this. And then they report on how much soil we carbon we need to improve annually on arable soils, and it's zero point zero four percent improvement <laughs> yeah. is enough to erase our carbon footprint. Zero point zero four percent improvement would be adequate. <laughs> we can do hundred percent. We can do eight hundred percent. We can radically change this equation, which means if we do the right thing on a small amount of acreage, it could ma- manifest that zero point four percent for the for the global, you know, 0.04% for the global. Yeah. So it's very exciting to me yeah. that biology is so much more forgiving and intelligent than our idiocy. And doing <laughs> a little bit of the right thing will go a very long ways to changing the dynamics of life on Earth and pr- preventing the sixth grade extinction may be much more doable than we expect. Yeah. So I would just urge anyone who's listening, I've always said that the human condition is the aggregate of billions of little decisions. Mm-hmm. And that you the world's not happening to you you are an active participant in it and you know you just heard zach deliver these numbers these numbers are attainable if enough of us get together and and activate around the the world our hearts know as possible quote (laughs) charles and um you know it's it's very um uh, tempting to think that, you know, it takes a billion people or two billion people to change the course of history. Well, it's really rarely ever happened that way. It's taken small groups of very, very dedicated people to do it. And uh, I think we have the seeds um, of something there. Um, and uh, and I'm certainly happy to be making that music with you both both literally and figuratively i love that i love that and you know maybe one thing to kind of clarify the power of those few is that great quote that comes out of the indigenous world that the only difference between dreams and our reality is that there is no doubt in our dreams Mm. and so we need to start to dream a new reality and we will have no doubt that it can be achieved we need to dream our reality instead of try to physically create our reality because there's so much doubt in the in the world of humanity because mm-hmm. we are so uh, so separated from our dream life, from our dream power. And so we need to start to dream together without doubt 
that we can be better than we are, that we can rise above the collective human destructive consumptive behavior that we've defined over the last thousands of years. We could be different, and we have been different in the past, and we could go back to those roots and then apply it through the technological world we live in through biomimicry, and we can invent everything better. We can invent everything to be in line with nature, not against nature. If 7.8 billion people were able to change their behavior overnight because of a message from fear that was mandated by a, a global media conglomerate, then why can't we repurpose that global media conglomerate to tell a story of hope and to tell a story of biodiversity, tell a story of adaptation and thrive? That's all it would take. Re repurpose the technological tools that we have to tell a story of cooperative biodiversity and cooperative release of our ownership therefore yeah. our belief of scarcity therefore our our selfishness yeah let nature start to nurture us again back into a sense of relaxed you know non-fearful living let us again remember that death is not an endpoint and so we will learn how to live when we stop fearing death and through these mechanisms we will start to get to this dreamlike state of a humanity that actually exhibits humanitarian kind of behavior if yeah you will. and principles and i think i will i will plant the seed um bad pun for our next conversation which is about values and where do values come from and how we can reinstantiate values in our global culture such that we see our systems and structures through their lens because if you talk about repurposing media for a message of hope or repurposing medical science for true health or agricultural technology for regenerative agriculture or all of these systems and structures that we've created, we tend to activate these systems around very like empirical, almost kind of spreadsheet like metrics and not through the value, not through the lens of values. And this is the thing that I kind of keep coming back to is that values are the common denominator of humanity, right? Um, and if we can coalesce and cohere around values, you know, it changes our systems and structures. What if we saw medical science through the lens of compassion instead of profitability? You know, what if we saw media and through the lens of real, true magnanimity and empathy instead of ad dollars. So I think that there are, you know, um, I, I'm always thinking about things in terms of ethics and morals and how we can reunite, recommune um, around these common denominators. So I think that there, uh, if you, I would love to, continue our next conversation with a with a, a discussion about values um, but thank you man i'm i'm so honored and privileged to know you to be in community here with you and your wife and your team and it just it feels so nourishing um really and uh and um i'm just happy to be uh in your microbial or orbit. <laughs> well, I honor everything you do. You have uh, made a career out of bringing community together, and that is a high calling. 
And so thank you for Wanderlust back in the day. Thank you for Commune here. Thank you for, you know, your participation in the new media of podcasting. And thank you for for your desire to, to listen. And I really respect what you did during the heat of that political campaign last year and the pandemic and everything else. You created forums to listen to people that disagreed with you. Hmm. That is a metric of success for humanity right there. If you want to know how we want to succeed, just act like Jeff. <laughs> we need to listen to those that disagree with us. And I know there's a lot of millions of people out there that disagree with me. And I'm fascinated by listening to their feedback. And it makes me more intelligent and forces me to understand my worldview better in 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 understanding its differences from theirs yeah i mean these are the forces of selection at play yeah but with ideas and not just genetics and so and especially engaged ideas yeah like you know the the philosophical discussions and arguments i love i I get into it but i'm always fascinated to see the application of those Mm. and so uh, to see stakeholders now coming around carbon in an engaged carbon economy where we start to focus all Money's towards the farmer's ability to make make micronutrient density. That engaged application of a philosophy of carbon is much different than don't change your behavior. Just go pay this guy over here for a carbon offset. Yeah, right. That's that's a, that's what I would call you know an abstract level of philosophy, right, or understanding. Right. And and in its application, it fails because the carbon strike keeps going up in the atmosphere. And so it's this listening that is the beginning of an engaged behavior that will solve the problems that we have at hand and so fast Mm. and so listen to your loved ones listen to those that you don't love uh, listen to the ones that hate you and then you will become wise and so let's let's dive in let's listen to each other more this year and let's recreate everything in the template of nature yeah amen brother let's get some food (laughs) good to be in the show Thank you for listening to my conversation with Zach Bush. To keep abreast of Zach and everything he's doing, go to ZachBushMD.com. And to sample Zach's commune course for free, go to OneCommune.com slash Zach Bush. And of course, as always, feel free to drop me a line at any time at JeffK at OneCommune.com or follow my regular rantings on Instagram at Jeff Krasno. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.